This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumela Lezondewi, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. I am with Amanda Machaka, Wissane Matebula and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. A Zimbabwe corruption watchdog says the wave of anti-government protests are in part fueled by public frustration. Malawi's leading lobby group, CISANET, has recommended that the Malawian government must temporarily suspend IPS. Slavery and other labor abuses are at a significant level in the seafood sector. But first, let's get the news from Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Spumelele. Good evening. Republic of Congo's government says that more than 4,000 people have been driven from their homes in the southern pool region since April when members of a former militia group started launching attacks. Government spokesperson Thierry Mwangala says over 2,000 people have moved to Kinkala Pool's capital and about 1,500 left for other areas. The government blames members of the ex-militia group Ninjas Nsilulu for killing at least 18 people in the past week. The army deployed to pool in April after militiamen killed 17 people. The attack came weeks after long-time President Denis Sassongweso's re-election. Morocco will elect a parliament on Friday for the first time since an Islamist-led government took office following Arab Spring uprisings that toppled leaders across the region. The Islamist Justice and Development Party came to power in 2011 after swelling protests prompted concessions from King Mohammed VI of a monarchy that has ruled the North African country for 350 years. A new constitution reduced some, though not all, of the king's near-absolute powers as autocratic regimes fell in Tunisia, Egypt and Libya. Prime Minister Abdelayla Abenkirana's PJD says a second term would allow it to continue its limited economic and social reforms. Amnesty International has accused Sudan's government of continuing its mission of uh, dropping bombs in the troubled region of southern Kordofan, resulting in the deaths of thousands of people over the past five years. Amnesty's researcher for Sudan, Priscilla Nyakwa Tat, reflects on the bombing incidents in the troubled region. Since the bombing campaign started, about 75,000 people have been internally displaced across South Kudufan. This is an estimated number that has been collected by the monitors. It could be more. And so we're talking about these are the persons internally displaced from their villages, but we also have people who are in their villages in the thousands but do not have access to food, do not have access to medication, do not have access to blankets or even what is required for basic living standards. South Africa's Parliament's Communications Committee has uh, resolved to initiate steps for the removal of the public broadcaster SABC board. Members agreed with African National Congress MP Lerumo Kalako, who was the first to officially propose the dissolution. The board was called before the committee to explain the reappointment of Claude Mutoning, first as COO and then as a group executive for corporate affairs. Kalako also called that an inquiry is instituted. I think there is uh, an agreement and uh, 
and uh, consensus around the issues which are bedeviling the, 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 the SABC and uh, the dysfunctionality also of the board. I will propose that uh, officially we make it a, a resolution of the committee to dissolve the board and uh, immediately we institute expeditiously an inquiry on the SABC as a whole. And finally, teachers from around the world are today celebrating World Teachers Day. World Teachers Day is held annually on 5 October to celebrate educators and the central role they play in providing citizens with quality education. The United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, launched the World Teachers Day in 1966, recognizing the role of teachers in enriching communities. Channel Africa News. Your time is 17.06 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. A Zimbabwe corruption watchdog says the wave of anti-government protests are in part fueled by public frustration at not being listened to regarding government corruption. In a new report, Transparency International Zimbabwe says corruption remains endemic in the country where billions of dollars are siphoned off in illicit financial outflows every year. Shingai Nyoka reports. In a new report, Transparency International warns that corruption is increasing. More and more low-level civil servants are demanding bribes to offer public services. Some of the most cited institutions that demand and accept bribes include the police, the vehicle inspection department and the education sector, explains Executive Director for Transparency International Zimbabwe, Mary Jane Mube. The traffic police and their implementation of the Road Traffic Act. They've been allowed to extort the public because that's really what it is. It's extortion. And the excuse that is now even openly said, unlike in the past, is that we have to supplement salaries. Corruption is not an aberration to uh, Zimbabwean politics, but it's actually an enabler. Earlier this year, taxi drivers launched violent protests against a police crackdown. And last week, street vendors clashed with municipal police, trying to move them off the streets. Opposition politicians say as elections approach, the ruling party is using state assets to buy votes. Movement for Democratic Change Member of Parliament, Jesse Majome. I really am horrified by the fact that a government minister can actually come out in the media and claim that um, he's going to take state land, urban state land, and give it to his ruling party youths. That's, that's corrupt. Development partners say the biggest cost of corruption is human and that this impacts on service delivery to the most vulnerable. The deputy head of mission for the embassy of Sweden, Maria Selen. Women go about their daily lives are every day confronted with the need to perhaps bribe for getting the necessary health care, maternity care, medication, uh, having to bribe to get a place to vend your stuff on the streets. It could be connected to acquiring land. The, the horrible um, thing about what we call sextortion, where perhaps young women who want to have tertiary education, go to university, actually have to to, uh, to engage in sexual relationship to go as far as that. For the 12th straight year, Zimbabwe has remained at the top of SADC's corruption index. ZANU-PF legislator Daniel Shumba. It's not always corruption. There are external issues. Zimbabwe is under sanctions. So there will be issues that will not necessarily follow uh, uh, general practice that you have to do in order to go around this. the sanctions. The data is there. Nobody talks about the effects of sanctions on us and what government must do to respond to those challenges. Transparency International Zimbabwe says anti-graft bodies lack the resources and teeth to hold public institutions to account. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Harare. 
Malawi's leading lobby group, Civil Society Agriculture Network, CISANET, has recommended that the Malawian government must temporarily suspend Integrated Production System, or IPS, and do a 100% turn to auction system in tobacco value chain, accusing the tobacco buying companies of using IPS to abuse growers. Judge Mohango reports from Lilongwe. This kind of a call comes as CISENET is meeting at a two-day conference in Malawi's capital, Ilongwe, to review agriculture policies. The IPS is a form of contract farming in which smallholder farmers enter into agreements with tobacco buying companies to provide all necessary support required during production in the form of inputs on credit. As part of their obligation, the farmers sell their leaf exclusively to the company they entered into contract with. The group says the suspension should stay until that time the current regulation framework for the system, which was supposed to be used in the interim, is reviewed. CISANET says although IPS remains a better way of selling tobacco, the current framework gives more marketing controlling powers to buyers while reducing farmers to mere tenants. But what are some of the things that are burning at the conference? Rex Chapota is chairperson of CISANET. We believe that government has to be listening because the future of Malawi indeed is in the hands of government as a big custodian of the same. However, what we are saying is that let's look long term. For example, it is good that government has got a national agriculture policy that has been approved for four years. But what we are saying as CISANET is that four years is good, but indeed long term is good enough. So let's look at the future. And for your information, during this conference, we have invited the Honorable Minister of Agriculture to officiate at the ceremony. We would want to develop a vision for the future in terms of the way agriculture can be situated and positioned to move the economic agenda of this country. Malawi's Parliamentary Committee on Agriculture has also been informed that most farmers are forced to sign contracts they do not understand due to language problems and lack of proper communication from the buyers. Deputy Chairperson for the committee, James Muntali, said the system came to address global issues in the production of tobacco, such as the use of child labor, and it is surprising that the buyers are now trying to take advantage of that to abuse farmers. Montali was the Minister of Agriculture when the current IPS regulation framework was adopted and entered into force in 2012, said the initial plan was to use the framework in the interim and it really needs review. But what does the future hold for the agriculture sector, including that of the growth of maize using the fertilizer subsidy program, FESP, Chapota again? If we want to look at agriculture seriously, we can't look at only four years. We need to look at the future. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, what do we want our agriculture to be like? At the moment, Tobacco Control Commission TCC Chief Executive Albert Changaya admitted that the system is facing a number of challenges, but the commission is taking some steps to address such challenges. Changaya mentioned the development of monitoring and evaluation framework, development of standard contract, regulating new initiatives by IPS, implementing institutions and regretting the marketing and offloading of tobacco. Currently, it is estimated that 80% of tobacco in Malawi is sold under IPS. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Lirongwe. Change your day. Be the voice of young African entrepreneurs. Change your day. A program that promotes open discussion. Change your day. We bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem. Our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the African entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs, educates and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 1000 hours to 10.45 a.m. Central African time. And on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1715 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, the faint voices of migrants will be heard much more loudly in UN circles. This is thanks to the inclusion of the International Organization for Migration, that's IOM. That's the hope and belief of IOM's Director General, William Lacey Swink, speaking shortly after the official ceremony at UN headquarters in New York, welcoming the agency into the system. IOM gave help to around 20 million migrants in 2015. The decision was made by the UN General Assembly in July and Mr. Swink said it was a historic day for migrants and their families across the globe. Matthew Wells asked Mr. Swink what benefits the IOM would bring to the UN system overall. For the first time the UN will now have a UN migration agency. For the first time they will have the global reach that we have which is 10,000 people in 500 places on all five continents which will give you a, a lot of ground truth and knowledge plus the 65 years of experience as we've evolved with the migration issue. We have a one and a half billion dollar budget last year and we use only 50 million about two percent to run the organization and of the 10,000 people we only have 300 headquarters so it's a very lean administrative structure which I think stands in contrast to some of our sister agencies. What are the key differences in terms of how you work and emphasis between the IOM and of course the UN's long-standing refugee agency? People will wonder you know migrants refugees yeah. obviously they you know they are often the same. Yeah there's a lot of confusion in the public mind and for understandable reasons. The way it works with the UNHCR-IOM relationship is that once the UNHCR has made a refugee status determination, an RSD, and there's a country that's ready to receive the, the, the refugee, normally the file passes to IOM and we do all of the operational activities. All the medical exams, about 250,000 a year. We do cultural orientation for Australia, Canada and the United States. We do the transportation, but we do everything uh, that's required to get them to their new home. And that works very well. We've always had a good understanding. Uh, They're our closest uh, traditional partner. But we go beyond refugees. Refugees are somewhat less than 10% of the 244 million uh, migrants. So the other migrants are people like victims of trafficking, the sick and the elder on the move, pregnant women on the move, tens of thousands of unaccompanied minors, uh, people going to join their families, students. So that all comes under our uh, ambit, and we do that. We do lots of unusual things. We do out-of-country voting in order you have more political stability that way. We do the we did the reintegration of the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. We've been asked to help with the reintegration of child soldiers in Colombia. So we do a lot of unusual things. Are you also confident that there won't be any sort of inefficient overlaps, if you like, between the work that you're doing and the work that the refugee agency does? Yeah, and there will be areas like, uh, for example, internally displaced persons who, you know, we do a lot of, most of what we do, we have 200 people inside Syria, they're doing only assistance to IDPs. Plus, there's a lot of overlap with other agencies. We work closely with ILO on labor migration. We work with UNICEF on anything involving children, like the Colombian children I mentioned. What what I think this will do, it will give us a greater uh, coherence than we have at present, where we're sort of outside the tent. And what fundamental difference do you think it will make to the lives of, of migrants and refugees having the IOM? now working within the UN? Well, that is the key question, and if I had not thought that um, it would improve the lives of migrants, I never would have recommended this to the member states. But we think, for one thing, the voice of migrants needs to be heard in UN circles, and as it stands, it's fairly faint because we're outside the system. It will also give us greater access to information, very important information on projects, It'll, to be very frank, it'll give us more access to funding because we're right now excluded from a lot of the multi-donor trust funds and we need to have access to that. We're number five or six in terms of SURF funding. We get about 10% of the $300 million. That's emergency funding. That's emergency funding, right, the, the, the Central Emergency Relief Fund. So we get about 10% of that, about $30 million a year. We wouldn't be excluded from it, but it makes it much easier. And will it make conditions easier in the field in practical terms? That you can, I think so. Now you can work within the UN family, well, so to speak. Uh, just on a very technical level, 
a lot of countries do not give us privileges and immunities. They, they, they either say or confuse us with an NGO, which we're not. We're an intergovernmental organization up to now. And so that will, that will simplify it. And it will also clarify uh, for the, in the minds of people who don't know who we are or what we are. I think now that we're in the UN and now that China has joined, a number of countries will now look at us much more seriously in terms of membership. And we have 165 members now. I think we will get fairly close to universal membership in the next couple of years. As you say, it's the biggest crisis in terms of migration and refugees since World War II, 65 million people mm -hmm. on the move. I mean, what benefits do you hope that they will see from this? The European, uh, what they call a crisis, was really avoidable. There were early warning signals, Lampedusa and so forth. And you know if people have been in camps for six or seven years like the Syrians, they're going to eventually head north because they can't work and the children don't go to school. So I think all of that will now be much easier uh, to, to manage together as a team. And does it need to be greater coherence overall in terms of how the NGOs work with the various UN agencies in order to you know, get the job done? Yeah. Well, what we need, we need two things. We need a whole-of-government approach because a lot of governments, they run it out of a single ministry. But every ministry has an interest in migration. And we need a whole of society so that we bring in not only the governments, but bring in civil society, all the, the faith-based groups and everybody who has an interest in migration, bring them all together around one table. We've tried to do it through the Global Forum on Migration and Development, but it's not a decision-making body, and it's, it's been very good to have that. And we now can move even beyond that by being in the UN. That's IOM's Director General William Lacey Swing speaking to UN Radio's Matthew Wells. The United Nations Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, CITES, has been meeting, and the meeting has come to an end at the Sentin Convention Center north of Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's Minister of Environment, Edna Mulewa, says the 17th conference of the parties to CITES was a success as it adopted most of its proposals through consensus and accommodated a variety of discussions on curbing illegal trade in global wildlife. More from South Africa's Minister of Environment, Edna Mulewa. Well, we are very happy that so far the conference started and it's about to end very well. Two things that we can say about this conference. The first one being the fact that it was really, really said by many other delegates who are here, in a, without exception, that this was such a great success from organization point of view. But you know, it's held on the African continent, on the African soil after so many years of it being held here. And people are saying, you Africans know exactly how to organize things. There was a provision made for them, for the environment was good for negotiations. There was no hostility at all that we sometimes see in some of the cops. So on that basis, therefore, people are saying, we then had a spirit that prevailed that allowed us to actually find compromises. We also saw South Africa, we also saw Africa, parts of the country, and that then means that people know about this country. They know that there are people out there who know exactly how to organize events, how to ensure that they treat people. So even if they are investors into the future, it means they will then be coming to on the continent. You know that Africa is a growing continent on the whole world. So that is a plus for us. It helps us to actually market and showcase this continent. Secondly, from the substantive point of view, that is now the content. There was a spirit that really went around here that was prevalent that said allowed people to find consensus. And on the basis of consensus, all the resolutions that were difficult even about rhinos, about elephants, about the lions were adopted in different small group meetings by consensus and that was indicated in a big way that indeed that spirit prevailed because that consensus that prevailed in committees then got us to adopt in the main plenary which is a final plenary adopt all those difficult proposals in a very smooth manner we are already ahead of time we are on the agenda now on this second last day almost at the end of tomorrow. So we will think that even the agenda we can conclude by today and tomorrow have a bit of open morning and bid a good farewell to our guests, all the delegates who are here. So that is indicative of the fact that there was substance and the substance was agreed upon. The difficult thing about elephants, we know that there were proposals from Kenya, from the Elephant Coalition in its entirety that was saying uplist the elephant population. Contrary to that, there was a contradicting proposal that said, let's sell the ivory. 
So those proposals were discussed. Unfortunately, those two had to be voted upon. Even with that, the voting of the delegation, if you look at them, of the delegations, they are saying we are agreeing with the scientific reports that are there. So this is the reason why I said the winner here is the COP itself. This body has been vindicated that it is indeed the body that makes decisions which are based on science because the reports that were tabled, these decisions are much more aligned to those reports. Let's say the report that was saying the African elephant population on the Sadek region is not under threat. So the decision that says go and uplist it it is under threat, was then defeated because the report was read and people agreed with the report. And again, the report that was saying, let's sell the stockpiles, there is genuine link or there is a thinking that this sale of stockpiles of ivory could be linked to the illegal market. This cop said there was no such a thing in the report that says the scientific report doesn't say so. The scientific report says this is led by the human conflict, wars, the fact that the habitat loss, there's these other factors that are not necessarily linked to illegal market. So the decision again was based on the report that is on the table. However, then the COP decided that in an amicable spirit, let's rather go and do work to find this linkage in case it is there so that we can only start selling ivory when there is clear understanding by all of us that there is no linkage between the illegal market and the legal market. So the spirit was good. And vindication of a COP was done that we are a scientific-based body that decides matters on the scientific basis, not by heart and not by emotions. Secondly, the delegates are prepared to discuss even if there is voting. The voting is a last resort and voting happened, even where voting happened, it was really accepted in good spirit because the parties agreed so. So on that note, it was really a good and successful conference of parties, 17 here on the South African soil, on the African soil. The human element of the whole CITES aspect of, uh, understand the issue of controlling trade in wildlife, but now looking at the benefits that would accrue to benefit the local communities. I want to use an example to illustrate how this COP concluded on the issue of benefits for ordinary people, rural communities. First of all, let me say there was a proposal and a discussion of establishing a rural committee of the CITES. That decision was not rejected. It was agreed to and the process is now ongoing that intercession. There must be work done that will determine that setting up of committee. Find money for it, set up the modalities of who it consists of and so forth and report to the next COP. That's the first element. The second one is that the elephant proposal, which I want to use as an example to illustrate how this decision was made and how it is good and safer also for our ordinary communities. If this COP adopted a proposal that says uplift on Appendix 1, the elephant or even the lions, as there were two proposals, or ban trophy hunting, that was going to be very detrimental to the communities because it is our ordinary communities that look after this element. And we argued very vehemently on behalf of our rural communities that you cannot stop doing a bit of trade, even if it's internal. You cannot stop hunting. Once you do that, you are closing the market for the rural communities. Those people who are in Namibia, in Zimbabwe, in South Africa, who own and live with these animals. That is South Africa's Environment Minister, Anna Mulewa, talking to Wandile Kalipa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi, informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. 
My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Your news headlines with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Spumalele. Good evening. Amnesty International has accused Sudan's government of continuing its mission of dropping bombs in the troubled region of southern Kordofan, resulting in the deaths of thousands of people over the past five years. Republic of Congo's government says more than 4,000 people have been driven from their homes in the southern pool region since April when members of a former militia group started launching attacks. And Morocco will elect a parliament on Friday for the first time since an Islamist-led government took office following Arab Spring uprisings that toppled leaders across the region. Those are news headlines. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1732 Central African Time. Now, slavery and other labor abuses are at a significant level in the seafood sector. This is according to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO. Seafood industry representatives, official workers, government representatives, and international organizations such as FAO have been meeting in Spain to discuss, among other issues, how best to ensure that employees are not exploited. Sandra Ferrari asked Uebag an aquaculture officer with FAO in Rome to outline the extent of slavery in the sector. The problem is, like in other agricultural sectors, quite relevant for fisheries and aquaculture. But no data exists on the exact extent and number of people in slavery. But there are significant indications from different parts of the world, including developed countries. In fisheries, we see many different challenges of fish workers in the seafood value chains, and that includes capture fishes, aquaculture, and fish processing. Problems include foremost poverty, often extreme labor conditions, issues of safety at sea, occupational safety and health problems, and many in the fishery sectors work as seasonal, casual, informal workers under poor or no contractual arrangements. So these issues have been getting a lot of attention in recent years. Have you seen any progress on the issues? Yes, we see there is increased attention and commitment from different governments, uh, but also NGOs, uh, certification bodies, and the fish industry, retailers, and private sector in general. There is progress in the sense of governments and other players trying to improve the situation on labor issues. We clearly see also there is a growing interest in social labeling, which increasingly focuses on labor issues and decent work criteria so that consumers can actually choose seafood which has been produced under decent work conditions. It is very clear, however, that we need to help enforce the relevant existing international legal framework. Foremost, international labor standards by the ILO, especially the ILO Protocol on Forced Labor and the Convention on Work in Fishing. These are crucial, important instruments which need to be implemented, need to be promoted throughout the sector. 
However, we also see the need to implement instruments against IUU fishing, against illegal fishing, because we know that where there is illegal fishing, there is also a very high likelihood for abuse of labor conditions. So how is FAO supporting member countries and partners to address decent work issues? Well, uh, FAO is basically implementing its strategic program, and in particular its strategic objective on poverty reduction, which includes an emphasis on the promotion of decent work. This is meant to support member states in their efforts to address decent work issues in the fishery sector, but also in the other agriculture sectors. Additional work we do is more specific. Uh, we work on the promotion of employment and the, the development of skills, for example, in this in particular, to enhance opportunities for women and youth to find their jobs, employment opportunities. The issues are very complex. We engage with several players and institutions in the producing countries. And we need to, of course, work with the governments, the government authorities, not only fisheries, but also agricultural authorities, as well as labor and others. Clearly, the workers' representatives also have a major role to play, but also NGOs are important in these efforts, such as are also media and, last not least, the consumers in general. What do you hope will come from the meeting? Basically, improve cooperation among the stakeholders, working together with ILO, but also with industry representatives, with uh, unions, with certification bodies. We hope that this cooperation is enhanced, that concrete actions and commitments come out by the various players, as well as by the governments. However, we also emphasize the opportunity for the seafood industry to enhance their efforts in terms of due diligence to be responsible and accountable for their efforts in addressing labor issues in their companies. We also hope to see a stronger recognition of fish workers' representatives. Fish workers' representatives, the unions, are not very visible, not very recognized, and they need to come to the table to clearly voice what fish workers actually experience and what they need. That is where Bug, where Bug was talking to Sandra Ferrari, and they were talking about slavery in the fishing industry as that conference is currently taking place at the moment. Now, American award-winning rapper Future will later this month perform at the MTV Africa Music Awards when the awards are held at a glittering event at the Ticket Pro Dome in Johannesburg. South African artists built to perform at this African premium event include BET Award winner Black Coffee and Mafigi Zolo. They will be joined by the, their African counterparts, Nigeria's Yemi Alade, Kenya's Sauti Sol, and Cameroonian Franco, among others. A renowned South African-born comedian Trevor Noah is set to host the awards. To talk to us more about this, we're joined on the line by Senior Creative Director at Viacom International Media Networks, Africa. That is Dylan Khan. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Dylan. Hey, how are you? I'm Thanks all right. for having me. Yeah, I'm all right. So how are the preparations going for the mamas? Uh, it's going fantastic. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing the, the things that are coming together for the show this year, um, which we hope to be able to reveal to, to your listeners and the, the world at large on the 22nd of October um, from the Ticket Pro Dome at 9 p.m. Mm. In in the past, we've had people like Trevor Nelson from BBC One Extra um, and Marlon Wayans, um, an American comedian, uh, hosting the event. Why did you decide to go with Trevor Noah this time? Well, I, I think I think there were lots of uh, um, reasons to go with, with Trevor this year. I think um, a the, the wonderful you know achievements that he's been making in the past year. He's known to a, a global audience. Uh, we also wanted to. You know, we've always wanted to um, have a fine balance between having international and, and local talent. Uh, and, you know, we were lucky this year to be able to, to, to speak to, to Trevor's team and, and find out his availability. You know, in years gone by, we've always tried to, you know, reach to different talents from international and local. And it's always been about availability. So, you know, this year we were lucky to have um, Trevor Noah available and uh, we're looking forward to him hosting the, the Mamas. You're talking about global audiences. How many people um, watch the Mamas exactly? 
I think uh, the, the global audience is is quite uh, a huge number. Um, goes up to like uh, say half a billion by the time you kind of add up all the kind of potential audiences. Um, we go on to the digital space uh, to a global audience as we did last year. Uh, we've also got um, the NTV channels across the across the globe that also take uh, the show as well. So it hits nearly half a, half a billion people once the show has aired on all the different platforms, terrestrial partners, um, as well as, you know, pay TV uh, channels uh, across the globe. Mm. Um, in the past, we've, uh, we've seen the Mamas go for a long time without coming to South Africa. They went to Nigeria several times. They went to Kenya. But for the last three years, they've been in South Africa. This is the third year in South Africa. Are we ever going to see, see you partnering with other cities in Africa again? No, absolutely. We, you know, we would love to take um, the, the mamas on the on the road every single uh, every single year and, and partner with uh, with cities across the across the continent. And that's one of our our aims. And we're so lucky to have uh, so many countries that we can uh, take the the awards to. Uh, so it's definitely things that we're having ongoing conversations with with different different partner cities, just as the EMA does with uh, uh, with partner cities in Europe. That's definitely something that we do uh, on, a, on a yearly basis with, with different cities. And what's amazing is that the show has got bigger and better, has got wider coverage, and uh, lots of cities now want to want to be part of the, the, the Mama journey. Um, we also know that uh, with the Mamas, there are fantastic um, uh, collaborations, cross-border collaborations that with musicians from different parts of Africa. Who are we looking um, forward, to, forward to this year? Well, look, I think uh, without giving it away, I would love uh, your listeners to... Just to go on, give it away. But what I, can, what I can say to you is that we do have, you know, some amazing talent from across the, the continent, uh, whether it's, you know, Casper, Narcissi, MT from South Africa, or Babes Aduma, or through to Nigeria, through to East, through to, you know, as many different uh, touch points that we can, we can get to be on the, uh, to be on the Mama stage. And we pride ourselves in in being able to give this platform to the, the artists to, to do their material, to partner with and collaborate with other people, and for the world to see those collaborations. And, you know, it's, 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 it's beautiful to see that we are able to bring the continent together, uh, you know, as much as we can to be able to tell that story of, of, of one Africa. Mm. Um, I, I was asking you to just go on and, and give it away, man. I would love to. Maybe off air I can tell you. so our viewers can be kept in the dark just a little bit longer there Um, so Future is coming down from America tell us about him and his inclusion yeah I think um, you know we we put you know we put it out to you know different stakeholders and kind of ask the question who would who would audiences like to to see and um, you know we've got a research team that kind of has focus groups that that we put it out to Um, and Future was one of the names at the top of the list that uh, audiences were really, uh, really intrigued to see. He's had, he's got a great back catalogue. Not only will he be performing on the Mama stage doing uh, tracks for the show itself, but if you buy yourself a ticket from Ticket Pro Closer, you'll be able to see him do a full live set uh, straight after the, the Mama has come to an end. So it really is worth coming down to see him. He's an amazing performer. He's actually finishing his world tour at the mama itself. So that's an amazing, you know, uh, way for him to sign off on his world tour is to be in, in Africa and share his, his talent, his music with, uh, with audiences who are, who are dying to see him. And it's, it's amazing to see as soon as, you know, we've been, uh, you know, releasing who the talent are, you know, tickets have been, have been flying. Um, and uh, we mentioned future and they kind of continue to fly. So we definitely, know that we've uh you know we've we've struck a, the, the right chord with the audience who who want to who want to see him uh you know coming coming to africa to close his world tour off um Dallin, maybe in just under a minute if you can tell us about the about the preparations from when you then agree with the partner city and the steps that you take then to ensure that you host a successful event at, at the end of that year i think our our aim is to to be able to highlight our our continent and our our talent and uh, and our host cities. 
So, you know, whether whichever city we do it in, our aim is to be able to highlight the great things that are happening in, in Africa, not only to our African audiences, but also to a global audience. Um, you know, I'm sure you're, you're fully okay with the fact that, you know, all of, all of the artists that are kind of breaking through into the international space and all eyes are on Africa. Black Coffee has done amazing things this past year. We know that um, with Kid, David O., uh, also doing, um, you know, some great collaborations. You know, Wizkid did the track with, with Drake. That's really opened up um, the, the African market to to an overseas uh, audience as well. So that's just a, an amazing story that we're, we're really pushing the boundaries on what we're doing, really trying to find new audiences and really trying to show, um, you know, that Africa is such an amazing hotbed for, for talent and creativity. Dylan Khan, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. And don't forget to buy your tickets and come down on the 22nd of October. All right. All right. Don't forget to buy your tickets. Dylan is asking you there. Now, Dylan Khan is Senior Creative Director at Vercom International Media Networks, Africa. 1745 uh, Central African Time. Here's Wissani Matebula with the Economic News. Good evening. Thanks, Espumelele. South African President Jacob Zuma says there's a possibility of creating close to 8,000 jobs in the country should the economy grow by a percentage. However, economists say the country needs to create millions of jobs to impact on poverty and inequality. Zuma was speaking at the 17th World Trade Union Congress currently underway in Durban here in South Africa. He says government is working hard to reach the targets set in the National Development Plan. We are working hard to boost the performance of sectors such as mining, agriculture, infrastructure and manufacturing, amongst others, in order to save and create jobs. If you get 1% growth next year, as envisaged, this will create over 8,000 jobs. Ultimately, we want to raise the level of growth to the 5% stated in our national development plan. Madawi's leading lobby group, Civil Society Agriculture Network, CISONET, has recommended that the Malawian government must temporarily suspend integrated production systems, the IPS, and do a 100% turn to auction system in tobacco value chain, accusing the tobacco buying companies of using IPS to abuse growers. CISONET chairperson Rex Chapota. We believe that government has to be listening because the future of Malawi indeed is in the hands of government as a big custodian of the same. However, what we are saying is that let's look long term. For example, it is good that government has got a national agriculture policy that has been approved for four years. But what we are saying as CISANET is that four years is good, but indeed long term is good enough. So let's look at the future. We have invited the Honorable Minister of Agriculture to officiate at the ceremony. We would want to develop a vision for the future in terms of the way agriculture can be situated and positioned. Burundi's trade deficit narrowed to $291 million US dollars in the first six months of the year. Costs for imported raw material for the manufacturing sector fell by 26%, while the, uh, those for petroleum products dropped by 9%. Business activity in Burundi, which relies heavily on coffee and tea exports, was slowed by several months of political violence. The Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari is selling two of his luxury jets in a bid to cut costs as the West African country battles to overcome a recession. The spokesperson Gabashi, who says Buhari is reducing the number of planes in his fleet to trim expenses. Nigeria's economy is on the ropes amid low oil prices. Oil is a mainstay of Africa's second largest economy. Still in Nigeria, Diageo has scrapped plans to leave its, uh, its stake in Guinness, Nigeria, due to tough economic conditions. 
in one of its uh, biggest markets for the world-famous stout. The decision by Diego is another blow to Africa's second-biggest economy, which is headed for its first full-year recession in a quarter of a century following a plunge in oil prices. The company says last year it planned to buy 15.7% of Guinea's Nigeria. Marriott International plans to spend 218.14 million US dollars on hotels in South Africa. Marriott last month won the final clearance to buy rival Starwood Hotels and resorts worldwide. The owner of upmarket hotel chains such as Reeds, Carlton and Sheraton already runs one of Africa's biggest hotel brands, Protier, which acquired which it acquired in 2014. Financial indicators now the dollar at thirteen six six South African Rands at ten point three two Botswana Bula nine point nine six Zambia and Kwacha also trading at zero point seven eight to the British pound and zero point eight nine against the Euro. Commodities gold one thousand two hundred and seventy four dollars. Platinum nine hundred and ninety one dollars per finance. Brent crude oil is at fifty one dollars thirty cents per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. Always missing your favorite Channel Africa radio shows? Well, now you don't have to. We have a free catch-up service that allows you to listen to Channel Africa radio content from your cell phone, computer or tablet at your convenience. Visit www.channelafrica.co.za and click on Programs for a list of your favorite shows. Select what you want to hear. Click on Listen and enjoy Channel Africa Radio. It's as easy as that. Channel Africa Radio, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1751 Central African Time, here's Mosibudi Makura with your sports news. Today, sports fans are starting off with rugby news. Springbok 7's coach Neil Powell has been reappointed with the Blitzboker for a fourth season. According to Jury Roo, the CEO of SA Rugby, Powell is highly sought after on the international seven circuit and they are grateful and excited that he will remain at the helm of the Blitzboker for a further four years. Meanwhile, the Springbok 7 squad started their preparations for the 2016-2017 World Rugby 7 Series in Stellenbosch early this week, keen to deliver another impressive year of performance on the world stage. The South Africans took overall second place at the 2015-2016 series that ended in June, having qualified for all 10 quarterfinals, eight semifinals and four finals. They then travelled to the Olympic Games in Rio in Brazil in August, where they won a bronze medal in the sevens tournament. Now to football news, South Africa's senior national team Bafana Bafana coach Sheikh Mashaba says he prays and hopes that the two days his boys will be spending travelling to Ogudugu Burkina Faso ahead of the crunch group phase 2018 Russia World Cup qualifier against the host does not hamper their objectives of getting their qualifying campaign off to a winning start. Bafana Bafana faced the stallions of Burkina Faso at the Stadia du for Oint with a match set or rather with the match set to get underway at 8 p.m. Central African time. It does, yes. It does. I mean, we'll be on the road for two days without training, without doing anything. That has a very, very effect on it. Well, uh, that's a many management thing, but I know from here we're going to Ghana, Ghana to Ivory Coast, and then Ivory Coast will go straight to Burkina Faso. Bafana Bafana have suffered only one defeat against Burkina Faso and they are able, or rather they will look, be looking to maintain that good record come Saturday. Look, what is important is... Um
Meanwhile, South Africa's under-17 national team coach Molefe Nzeki, whose side departs tonight for the inaugural BRICS under-17 football camp in India, says mental strength will be key if the young boys are to be crowned champions. The tournament, which features the five BRICS countries, South Africa, Russia, India, Brazil and China, kick off today and will be played annually, something that makes Nzeki believe that the platform to, rather, that this is a platform for them to showcase their talents. Look, what is important is um, the identification of talent and uh, when, after having identified that talent, you need to have enough time to work on these boys because the reality of it is that um, uh, they come from different parts of, of, of our country and uh, you, you need to blood them in into the team and work more on their mental, mental strength because, yes, South Africa is, is, a, is a very talented country when, when coming to these uh, age groups. But uh, the most important thing is, is, is for us to introduce them to international football so that they can understand that it's not only about skill, it's not only about talent. Um, it has to do with the experience and, and, and what are the trends uh, that are taking place in football currently. And finally, Zimbabwe will face South Africa in the final of the 2016 Netball Diamond Challenge tournament tonight at the University of KwaZulu-Natal Westville campus. The Zimbabweans will be brimming with confidence after they win against Uganda on Tuesday night. They will be facing a strong South African side that has not lost a match in the tournament thus far. Zimbabwean head coach Lidwina Dondo is expecting an exciting match. We are going to see a very exciting game. Because uh, my girls, when they play the, the experienced teams, the best teams in Africa, that's when they bring out their best. So I'm not afraid of them. We have also practiced, we have put set our approach to the game. So I expect a very exciting game tonight. The song is forcing at the summer. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.56 Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. A Zimbabwe corruption watchdog says the wave of anti-government protests are in part fueled by public frustration. Malawi's leading lobby group, CISANET, has recommended that the Malawian government must temporarily suspend IPS. And slavery and other labor abuses are at a significant level in the seafood sector. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Tracy Pumgard, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. You can send us emails on info.channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za to that's channel Africa One or SMS us plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. We leave you with a Jezil Brothers with a Kumba Fire.